Welcome to Christ Chapel College, the college outreach of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope everyone experiences what Jesus calls abundant life. So we unapologetically point to Him as the source of life and joy. If you're a college student in the Fort Worth area, we'd be stoked to connect with you. Find out more at ChristChapelCollege.org and on Instagram at ChristChapelCollege. How are you guys? Good. Uh, my name is Ben. I'm uh, one of the pastors around here, and I'm excited to get to preach God's word to you. We'll be in 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you are new, we uh, usually just preach through books of the Bible. And so uh, last semester we were in 1 Samuel in the Old Testament, and now we're in 2 Samuel. Um, while you're flipping there, um, I want to tell you two pretty quick stories, uh, both, both good things, but they have very different responses to those good things. The first was um, flashback to I was probably 21-ish, um, I think around there, and I was like doing some community college stuff during the summer, knock out some cheap credits um, in college, and I remember in community college, I was coming around a corner from the parking lot heading to uh, my class, and around the corner came Danielle Archibald who, spoiler alert, later became my wife, Danielle Fuqua, who's sitting in the back of the room. But don't everybody turn and stare, because it'll get awkward. Um, but, uh, but it was Danielle, right? And so I knew Danielle. We knew of each other. We'd hung out in group settings before. Um, and if you know my wife, she is unbelievably beautiful. Um, not just outside, she's just a beautiful person. And so I walk around the corner, and there she is. And we'd chatted, but like here, one-on-one, like here we are talking, and I'm trying to make small talk, and sweat is just pouring off of me. And I'm trying to be cool and trying to play it, play it smooth. And I'm just, I have no idea what I said. Started to black out and just started chatting with her for a second and then kind of headed off to class. And when I headed back around the corner, um, she went on to the parking lot as if not, you know, nothing happened um, <clears throat> because it was just me. But I turned the corner and, uh, and I realized I was totally out of breath. And I realized for about 90 seconds, our entire little interaction right there, I had just straight up stopped breathing. I had just forgotten to breathe during the, that small talk because I was so smitten and nervous and like flustered. My lungs were like, what do we do? And my brain was like, shut up lungs. I'm trying to talk to this girl. And so I just stopped breathing for a good solid 90 seconds. I came around the corner and just got dizzy and almost blacked out, um, right? And so that was a response to seeing who would later become my future wife um, and just being honestly, um, embarrassingly, just kind of in awe, right? I'm way cooler now. Um, when I'm around her. I've chilled out a lot. You guys would be super proud of me. Um, But at the time, that was a response that was incredibly natural to me, right? Like, here I see this beautiful girl is way out of my league, and I'm chatting with her for a second, and so my response was just kind of, oh my goodness, I just stopped breathing. Okay, other story, right? Let me tell you another story. Um, This was uh, my dad's work uh, had given him two courtside seats to a professional basketball game. Um, And if you know what courtside seats are, they're the seats you know, you can sit up way up high in the stadium and down here, and then da- courtside is literally chairs that are on the same level on the court side where the players are. That's where they get the name, okay, guys? So we had two courtside seats to a professional game, which is epic, right? Those seats cost more than probably our car growing up, but we had a crummy car. But that, I mean, there was a big deal. And so my dad took me to a courtside game. Hey, speaking of which, TCU, way to go against Baylor, guys. We all there? Good job. Good job. Anybody sit courtside? Anybody just right there on the edge? No? Okay, cool. Great. Um, breaks down my story then. But there we are, right? 
courtside, and I was a kid. I was probably maybe 10 years old. And I remember that, also this really cool experience, right? An incredible opportunity, a neat experience. I mean, there's people all around us. I mean, the players are just right there dunking and shooting. And, and I remember as a 10-year-old, I remember being bored by halftime. I remember like starting to fall asleep. I remember asking my dad multiple times in the third quarter, in the fourth quarter, can we go? Is it over yet? And here I am in these incredible seats, incredible experience. And yet my response to that experience was just no reaction, no emotional reaction, no real response to what I was experiencing because I wasn't really sure how to experience it. I didn't have the depth to understand that, right? Those are two different stories of cool things happening, right? Running into who would be my soon-to-be or my future wife one day um, after a lot of stalking and, and a, a lot of years of that. Um, and, a, and, a, and a reaction that that produced that was just natural. I couldn't control it. And then simultaneously, another story where it's great, cool, amazing experience. It should be producing all these sorts of emotions and reactions and memories, but it didn't. What we're going to see in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is we're going to see that God has designed a biblical reaction. There's a template for us in this chapter of what an appropriate response should look like when we come in contact with the blessing of God. When I say the blessing of God, I mean his relationship, his salvation in our life. And so what we're going to see is there is a proper way to respond. There is a model for us to say, hey, right? You, you look at a 10-year-old sitting courtside seats, taking up a seat, and doesn't really appreciate it. You realize, man, I don't think he understands the depth of what he's experiencing, right? What we're going to see in Scripture today is, do we understand or have we even experienced the depth of what God has done and the grace that should produce a response? So that's where we're going. Second Samuel Chapter 7, verses 1 through 3 is going to help set the scene for us. This is what it says. Verse 1, and we'll throw it up on the screen if that's easiest for you. It says, now, when the king, and that is referring to King David, now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Here's what's happening. King David is the, the man. We've been following him since 1 Samuel. He's been appointed the king. God's given him a ton of favor. He's defeated his enemies. He's in the season where they're kind of prosperous now. The nation of Israel, under his rule, um, you know, God is speaking to him and, and, and to his prophet, Nathan, who's kind of his right-hand man that God's communicating uh, to David through Nathan. But also what you had was you had the Ark of God. And in the Old Testament, that is how God chose to reveal himself right, was he chose to, to dwell within this ark, right, and, and throughout the wilderness when the Israelites are fled Egypt and, and throughout the beginning of the nation of Israel, he's in this big tent tabernacle thing. David thinks, this is messed up. I, I am the king. I have this incredible house, and that's God, and we put him in a tent. This isn't right. We need to build him a temple, which is a great idea, right? Very noble, very good idea. Seems to have a green light here at the end of this verse. But what we're going to see in this next section, um, and I'll just paraphrase it for you, but what we see is that God actually says, no, I'm good. I don't, I don't need you to build me a temple. I'm not asking for you to build me a temple. Uh, that's something that I am the God of this whole earth, and I don't need you. Thanks, but no thanks, essentially is what he says. But he doesn't just say no. In chapter 7, he says no, but then he simultaneously, God does, 
said, I'm going to bless you, David. So David says, I want to build you a temple, God. And God says, no. I'm not served by human hands. I'm the God of the universe. I don't need you to build me a temple. I'm not asking you to build me a temple. Um, And we'll hear more about that and why he doesn't get to later in 2 Samuel. But I want you to see that then God says, let me bless you. I'm going to bless you. I'm just going to read, and he goes on and on. I'm just going to read a few verses, 14 uh, through 16 in this chapter. Look what God says. This is God talking about David and David's son. David's direct heir uh, to the throne. He says, I will be to him, to, to David's son, to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. By my steadfast love, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house, talking about David, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. He goes on and on. God is talking about not only David and David's line and the lineage of David and the significance that he says, David, I'm going to make your throne significant forever. I mean, here we are in a coffee shop in Fort Worth, Texas, 3,000 years after King David, talking about David and his throne and his line, but also he, there's this, this, um, this head nod to the Messiah that David also, through his line, eventually Jesus, a thousand years later, will show up out of the line of David, and through Jesus, obviously, the, the world is blessed, and, the, and eternity is, is unlocked for those who put their faith in Christ. So here we have this incredible blessing, right? God tells uh, Nathan to tell David no, but then he delivers this incredible blessing to David. Huge moment. With the rest of our time, here's what I want us to do. I I want us to study and dig deep in verses 18 through 29. What is the proper response to that? When God says, this is what I'm going to do. My steadfast love is never going to depart from you. You're mine. I love you. I'm going to build a relationship with you. I'm going to bless your family. I'm going to move in your life. What is the proper response in the rest of this chapter? We're going to see David's response, which is spot on, and I think it's massively convicting and has been really worshipful for me as I've studied it. So um, there's a ton to learn. What I want to do is I want to read the whole response of David. It's a big chunk, so stay with me. I'm going to read the whole big chunk, and then we're just going to take it apart. There's four big things, themes in it, that I want you to see, these patterns of how David responds, and so we're just going to unpack it bit by bit. But, but I just want you to hear the whole response all in one because the Word of God is honestly beautiful. Listen to this. Verses 18 through the end of the chapter. This is David's now response from being blessed. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you've brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you. And there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people? making himself a name 
and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out people, uh, by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods, and you established for yourself, your people Israel, to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house. And do as you have spoken, and your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established before you, for you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Praise God for the, the, the word that he has given us, right? I realize this is a huge chunk and you really could do a whole sermon series on just these verses. Here's what I wanna do. I wanna take 20 minutes and I wanna just unpack four dynamics to the response that David just gave. This is a huge moment in the life of David and really in the, in the history of Israel that, that David's been blessed in this explicit way and so um, I wanna show you what a right and holy response is. Um, uh, you know, as if, as, if we, as if we can then put it over our lives and say, God, are we responding correctly to what you've done? So four aspects of his response. And the first, the first is humility, right? We see that right off the bat. Verse 18, verse 18, remember it said right off the bat, then King David went in and sat before the Lord. And what did he say? He said, who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? David's response to, to God saying, you are mine, I'm going to have a relationship with you and your people and your people's people and I'm going to use you. And David's response to that blessing, that salvation, that this promise, that covenant relationship is humility, right? He's saying, who am I? And, and who am I that you've brought me this far, brought me into this covenant relationship with the God of the universe? And it's not a humility, right? It's not a humility that, that shrinks David's confidence. Like, oh man, God is so holy and God is so much more powerful oh man and, and not, it doesn't shrink his confidence it's a humility that actually leads to a deeper relationship a closer relationship with this God right this deep relationship of David right because he's humble in saying why do I deserve this who am I to get this but then there's also this confidence of who am I I am yours so it's this beautiful humble confidence that should come from a genuine relationship and, and the grace of God that shows up. And so how about for us? How about for you in your life? What response have you had? Have you experienced that kind of humble confidence in your walk with the Lord, right? And when God blesses you, and let me make real clear, when I say God blesses you, I don't mean, I don't mean when God, when you like cram for a test and then you're walking into the test and you're like, God, you got to help me out with this. And then somehow miraculously you get like a B plus and you no business getting a B plus. I don't mean that kind of blessing. When I talk about God's blessing throughout the rest of the sermon, what I mean is his salvation, right? I mean his greatest blessing for those who follow his. The fact that we have a God who says, by my grace, I will save you. I will make you my own. I will adopt you as a son or as a daughter and you will be in my family forever. 
in that relationship. That's what I mean, right? I, I want to take us to um, Titus chapter 2. And here's what I'm going to do. Um, I love God's word in, in, how, in how it synchronizes, right? So what I want to do is I want to walk us through uh, chapter 7, and we're going to see these four aspects of, of 2 Samuel. But then I also want to take you to Titus 2, and I want to show you how the Old Testament and the New Testament really lay on top of each other in a beautiful way that applies to our life to say there is a proper response to God's grace. And in in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, Paul says this. He says, for the grace of God, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So even Paul, right, a thousand years later than than David is saying, hey, the biggest blessing is this grace of God that, that is salvation. So here's my question for everyone here. Have you experienced God's salvation, his grace in your life? Not works, not uh, Christian religion, not moralism, uh, not good track record, but have you experienced deeply the grace of God who meets us in our brokenness? Like what, like what Nathan talked about in the welcome, like what we, what we sing about, have you experienced that in your life? And if you're not sure if you have, Right? If you, well, I've prayed a prayer, and I've, I've certainly acknowledged that Jesus, you know, is, is my Savior. But have you experienced the grace of God? I, I think if you're not sure, look at the effects that the grace of God should produce. The grace of God, God's grace, and his salvation should produce a humility that deepens our relationship with God. So the, the first facet to his response, David's response, our response, you know, Titus chapter 2, that response, is this. It's God's grace and his salvation is going to produce a humility that actually deepens your relationship with God. And so look at your relationship with God. Have you experienced that? Right, it's, it's the primary response all throughout scripture, throughout David's life, throughout the Psalms, the apostles in the New Testament, and your life today. Have you seen his grace and been moved by it? I want, I want that idea to challenge your, your thinking um, of what it looks like, what it feels like to have received salvation from, from God. And when you think about that in your own personal relationship, is there a humility leading to a deeper relationship? I think, I think one of the greatest indicators that we've gotten it wrong, maybe the two greatest indicators that maybe we've missed the gospel, or at least we've just camped out on the shallow end of experiencing God's grace, the two greatest indicators that help me realize, oh man, I, I either don't get it or I'm at least camping in the shallow end is self-righteousness or it's this isolation and distance from not feeling good enough, right? Self-righteousness says, right, that, that you know, I, I don't understand my sin. And so self-righteousness says, well, I, I'm good enough, right? I, I've received God's salvation and there's kind of an entitlement behind it. I, I've received God's salvation because uh, I've done enough good things. Self-righteousness says, yeah, I've experienced God's grace and, and I'm his. And there's not a humility when I get closer to God. There's actually a pride. Yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing way better than that guy. Oh man, I'm doing so much better than those girls. That is a, that is a, a relationship that's not really pure grace of God producing a humility. That's some sort of self-righteousness thinking we're earning our way up a Christian ladder that isn't a part of a biblical response of true grace and salvation, right? And then the other side of the fence, one thing is is self-righteousness. This is, hey, I'm a pretty good Christian, man. I'm doing good. I've earned this. The other side is this idea of isolation and distance, right? And if self-righteousness is not really understanding sin and, and, and 
and my need for Christ, well, then distance and shame is not understanding the power of Christ over my sin, right? And that's when we say, well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I've experienced salvation, but I feel distant from God because I know I gotta clean myself up first, right? I, I kinda, I, I mean, I'm a Christian. I've experienced salvation, but I don't really have this humble intimacy with God because I gotta, I gotta get some, I gotta get some things in line first. I gotta clean up. I gotta, maybe I gotta wait till college, and maybe after college, that's when I'll kind of change some of the, some of the lifestyle, and that's when I'll draw closer to God, or I'll wait till I'm married, or I'll wait later in life, or I just feel so far from Him. And and what that is is it's not me really understanding what salvation is, what my surrender to His grace is, and it's, it's me putting him in a, a box and, and not believing he is strong enough. So again, that question before us, man, is there a humility, God's grace and salvation, a humility, a genuine effect that deepens our relationship with God? Let me keep going. The, the next three aspects are, are pretty quick. Second one is this, second dynamic of David's response in uh, verse 22 of chapter seven. Uh, he says this, therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you. So what we have here in this verse and throughout his response, if you remember, is David just saying, God, you're the man. His genuine response was, yes, humility that drew him near, but it was also what? It was praise. It was awe. It was adoration. It was affirmation of, God, you are good. You are good. You are amazing. You are powerful. Right, But that appreciation of who God is, it has behavior change. It's not just, wow, you're awesome. It's, wow, you're awesome. And, and being in awe of who you are actually changes how I live. Look with me at Titus chapter 2 again, right? And we'll put it up on the screen. Titus, Titus chapter 2, if you remember, in verse 11 it said, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Look what it does. Look what happens when the grace of God that brings salvation happens in someone's life. Verse 12. It's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Salvation, the salvation of God that we see in chapter 7, we see in Titus 2, it should produce a humility, but also it should, it should produce an appreciation that shapes how we act. Right? It changes how I act as I appreciate what God has done for me. Right? I want to in, in this verse, it says, I want to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, right? I want to renounce, that's crazy, right? But what it says is that if the grace of God is happening in my life, then that appreciation changes my behavior. Meaning, I'm so in awe of what he's done, I appreciate so much what he's done, then my life now responds with saying all the worldly passions, which we all have, all of those things that I wanted to chase after, I don't, I'm losing my taste for those things because I am more and more smitten and aware and, and understand the depth of what he's done and how he loves me. And that's huge. That's a huge aspect to truly responding genuinely to what God has done. And that's massive, right? The fact that, the fact that Daniel chose me right, to, to play that illustration out a little further, right, uh, I saw her in community, at the community college parking lot, right, I didn't ask her out on a date for probably another nine months, um, just because I'm a chicken, finally, we date for a long time, right, she, she could have married an oil tycoon, guys, she could have married a 
football star, player, billionaire. I don't know. She could have, I mean, there was plenty of other options, right, in her life because of who she is. And for whatever crazy reason, she chose me. Okay, so that relationship produces in me a desire to say, man, I want to serve her. I want to love her. I, I don't unload the dishwasher and take out the trash and occasionally try to pick up my dirty clothes. I don't do those things so that she will choose me so that I will stay married to her. I do those things out of a response of, I love my wife and she loves me. And out of a response from that relationship, well, I wanna change, I wanna, I wanna help, I wanna serve her, I wanna love her, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna do things that are honoring to her and that, and that maintain faithfulness to her and all of those things come as a response. And somewhere along the way, we get that backwards, right? Somewhere along the way, some of you have been taught, no, you've got to do good things to earn God's grace. You've got to do enough good things to earn that salvation. Somewhere along the way, somebody sold you that, and it, and it makes logical sense because everything else in our world is performance-based except the gospel of Jesus Christ that says you cannot earn it. I am offering you grace. Now, make no mistake, your life, your behavior, what you chase after, wh- wh- how you spend your evenings, h- how willing you are to cheat on a test or on a paper, uh, how, how you compromise um, the things that you know to be right, all of those things, yes, they change, but they change as a response to actually experiencing the grace of God and salvation and a relationship with Jesus. That should be a response in your life, so is it? Are you trying to change behavior to earn God? Or is your behavior transforming? You're losing a taste for what the world offers you. Those things that you used to chase after, those things that you used to be addicted to, that God, you would draw nearer and nearer and say, I don't don't desire those as much as I used to. God is changing my heart. He's changing my appetite. And if you're not there yet, if those things aren't happening in your life, if you're still trying to earn it or you're just waiting for it to change, draw near to God. Draw near to God. The third one is this. Look what, uh, look what he does. God's grace and salvation, right? It also gives us faith, right? It's a faith that gives you hope. Look at David's response to God in uh, verse 26. He says, and your name will be magnified forever, saying, the Lord of hosts is God over Israel and the house of your servant David will be established before you, right? There's a future acknowledgement that David is professing here, right? So he's gone from past tense, wow, look what you've done, look what you're doing, look who you are, to now a future tense, right? We see it again in Titus, remember Titus chapter 11, chapter, I mean, chapter 2, verses 11, 12, and let me get to 13, so in 11, Remember, the gospel, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation, and then what does it do? It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright lives. These are all responses, waiting, in verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see how both Old Testament, New Testament, the response of the gospel is the same. The response of the gospel should produce a hope. It should produce a faith that God has got this. And man, that changes everything for my current, my current anxiety. Because I know, man, this is the same God who kept his promises and he will keep his promises. And so all of a sudden I have a faith and a hope that I can believe in. And so often that's not what we do. 
So often our hope is in all of these other things, but here God says there's a different perspective. There's a different perspective that I have. It's a future perspective. I'm going to finish what I started. It's not necessarily a future perspective that your life is gonna be super easy or that everything's gonna be comfortable, but it's a super perspective, a perspective that he says, I am good and I am with you and I am near you and I will be enough for you no matter what you go through, all of the other circumstances. And so let me ask you, is that happening? And maybe even more pointedly, to what depth is that happening? And the best way to diagnose what depth that is is just start picking apart, stripping away the wobbly false hopes that we so often look, look for, for our hope, right? So, so, so often I find my hope in, yeah, I just gotta get a good job after college. That's, that's where my satisfaction, that's where my joy, yeah, yeah, I, I can't get through college and then get some lame job and get stuck. Or, yeah, 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 no, I know God and he saved me and I've got a relationship. But my future joy is really dependent on the fact that I can't stay single forever, right? Like, I, I get it, God is my salvation, but my future hope is also I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to be the cat, the cat lady, right, in my 50s, right? Nobody wants that, right? And so all of a sudden it's like, well, yeah, now my circumstances, or I've got to have the good job, or I've got to be well-liked. Yeah, yeah, no, God's my salvation. So all of a sudden we have all these false hopes that don't hold up. They don't stay. They're not, they're not grounded. They're all circumstantial. What's that look like in your life, man? Because that produces so much anxiety. Paralyzed by anxiety because I got to get this and this, and what if this happens? What if that happens? And, 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 and what we put our hope, our foundation is shifting in quicksand, and if this doesn't happen, and this person, and what if this person doesn't and doesn't like me, and I don't get this, and, and, it, and, it's, and it's anxiety producing. And the world's got a hundred false things that you say, oh man, this is, this is what you find your security in. Yet his salvation says, I will be enough for you. Do we believe it? And to what depth do we believe it to where we respond with that kind of hope? Last one is this. <clears throat> Last one is um, verse 29 of chapter seven. Now therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. There's a ton of things we could continue to unpack in this passage, but I wanna, I wanna end on this one. Um, I don't want you to miss this collective the collective plural nature of this prayer from David, right? He's praying for his house, right? There's a transition from this singular, you know, response, how it affects him, and then there's a transition as he ends his prayer before God about how it affects his people and his house. And we see it in the final verse in Titus chapter two, the verse 14. Um, it says, he it says, who, give, who gave himself for us, is what Paul says. He uses the same language. He shifts from singular to plural, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This idea of man, God's grace and his salvation, um, it should produce a unity to a, a radical community. And let me unpack what I mean by that. Um, your salvation, make no mistake, there should be a personal relationship with God right, this beautiful personal intimacy that should happen in your salvation. But somewhere along the way, and I don't know if it's like an American Western idea that's infiltrated Christianity, but, but all throughout the Bible, man, there is one of the responses of God's grace and his salvation 
is not just for you to have this like single serving private relationship in this box over here with Jesus and you have your own private quiet times. It should also create a response where you all of a sudden become a part of a community and not just a clique of people who all like the same thing and enjoy singing songs together on Sundays. No, no. You are adopted into a family, and so there should be a, this unity to a radical community. When I say radical community, I don't mean like this ministry or that church down the street over there. I mean you're a part of a body of believers, and it should look different than the world. There should be an adoption, a connection into community because you're a bunch of people who say, I desperately need Jesus. A bunch of people who are all saying, I'm not good enough, and yet, who am I? Who am I to be adopted by the king of the universe, by his grace? I am, though. And this humble confidence that unites God's people where we don't judge each other and we walk with each other and we're not afraid to to have our sin revealed to us by somebody else who's pointing it out in love and in kindness and and, and likewise, and we serve together. Some of my favorite things about mission trips, whenever you take a big group on a mission trip, is there's always like a uh, a one-on-one relationship with the Lord that usually, man, you got some extra time. Maybe your, your phone is kind of out of your hand, at least for me. You know, I kind of put my phone down when I'm on a mission trip way more than I normally do. Uh, and so I'm, I'm just getting sweet time with God and I'm, I'm journaling and I'm spending time with him. But then also every time you connect to all these other people that you would have never connected with before. What's that look like for you? Is there a radical community that's set apart, that's not preference-based? If you... If you look up in your life and you say, yeah, yeah, no, I got, I got Christian friends. If all of the people in your life are people that are fun and that you enjoy hanging out with, great, you should have people you like hanging out with. But that's not a radical community unified by the Holy Spirit who saves a bunch of broken people. That's just people you like hanging out with. And great that they're Christians. You should have roommates that aren't drama factories. But at the same time, you should also look up and say, man, I am connected to people and have and care for people and people care for me who I would have never been friends with outside of the fact that I have the spirit of God living in me that I didn't earn or deserve and it's living in them and there's a unity that happens and that is contagious. And it's amazing and it is a proper response. It is a reaction have I really experienced grace? Do I really see my salvation for what it is? Or is it this little single serving thing that I can just be saved and kind of keep this one-on-one relationship with Jesus and then I can just kind of live in my community however I want to? And there's a disconnect there. There's either a lack of understanding or a lack of depth in our life when we, including myself, drift into those patterns. Here's where I want to leave you. I want to close with these four questions. And these are just the questions I've already asked, but I want to make sure you sit and, and, and process with them this next week because I don't want you to miss the richness of, I think, the challenge that David and even in, the, in Titus gives us of how to respond appropriately. Ask yourself this question. Have you been humbly brought near to Jesus through his grace, gracious salvation? Is that something that's happened in your life? And maybe you're here and you're like, I don't, I don't, that's a weird question. I don't know. I've done the church thing. I did the prayer thing. I prayed the prayer. I've, I've acknowledged things. Maybe I've even gotten dunked in water and all of those things. But have you been humbly brought near to Jesus through his gracious salvation that he says you can't earn it, you can't do it. Put your faith in Christ and Christ alone. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago 
our Savior came and died and we say, yes, I've surrendered to that. And in that surrender, I have received salvation and the Holy Spirit in a way I cannot explain. More than a head knowledge, more than a, a prayer, an incantation I repeated one day. Man, no, that heart change has happened. And if it has happened for you, then praise God, keep going. Keep drawing more and more near. And if it hasn't happened for you yet and you're not sure, make this your day of salvation. Today, say, I'm tired of being, trying to do the church thing. I'm tired of trying to be moral enough. I'm tired of trying to keep the Christian list. I just want Jesus, and I want him to change my heart. And I want all of the things that I know I'm supposed to do, I want them to come from an overflow of a God who says, you're mine. I want that. Make today the day of your salvation. You have a God who says, I want you, and I have given my son so that you might be mine. That's the invitation before you change your eternity surrender and say okay I'm going to try that second question have you seen your behavior change as a response to God's grace have you seen it change have you been moved by his grace have you lost your taste are you losing your taste I mean I'm still a sinner right I've been walking with the Lord for a long time and I'm still a sinner so it's are we moving in that direction Is that changing? So ask yourself, man, have I experienced the grace of God in such a deep way where no, my behaviors really are changing as a response to this God I love? Third question, do you have hope that is built on your faith in Jesus rather than your circumstances? You say, I'm doing pretty good, honestly. I'm not super anxious. Man, I feel like things are good. I'm walking. I'm really in a good place. Praise God, that's good. I want that for you. But simultaneously, is that just propped up because your circumstances are great right now? If God strips those circumstances, if your circumstances change, man, are, are you, is your foundation built on something that can sway back and forth? Keep going, keep digging, keep building your foundation on who he is and what he says. And then lastly, are you experiencing real and radical community because of what Christ has done? Not because it's the clique that you're supposed to hang out with. Not because it's the clique that is more moral. Not because it's the click that your grandmother is really excited that Billy's going to church now. He's got church friends. No, no. That you are experiencing community in a way you've never experienced because it's not just about preferences and do we get along. It's about a spirit of God unifying people that have no business being friends, much less brothers and sisters. Through the gospel, God has initiated an eternal and a purposeful relationship with you. God has initiated that. God has initiated it and it changes everything. How will you respond to that? Will you respond shallow? Will you check the box? Or will you see it and be changed by it? Let me pray. Father, we love you and we're grateful for how you loved us. You love us first and you love us perfectly and your, your grace is overwhelming. It should be overwhelming and yet, God, I'm convicted that so often it's just something we say at church. We talk about your grace, we sing about your grace, but God, we, we want to be transformed by your grace. Would you do that? Would you help us understand how deeply you have moved literally heaven and earth to build a personal relationship with us we don't deserve? That you've moved heaven and earth to be united with us in a way that God, as we experience how much you love us, it changes how we live and um, changes what we put our hope in, changes where we, where we put our anxieties, 
changes the community that we walk in even. And so, God, would you continue to transform us, Lord? Um, and if that means, Lord, as we pray and as we sing, if that means that it's less of us, God, that's what we ask. We want to be transformed, not to be the best version of ourself. This is not a self-help gospel that we can just do these good things and follow these steps and, and then we'll become the best version of ourselves. God, we want to we look like you because that's what we were designed to do. So God, would you help strip away the things that are not you? Take those things from us. Help us surrender those to you and God, do what only you can do in this room by the power of your Holy Spirit for your glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.